Well, good morning, Riverside. So good to see you. You guys are looking good this morning. Some of you needed to hear that. It's a word from the Lord for you. Um, honestly, it's uh, such an honor to be here. Um, again, I just want to say thank you to, to Brent. And I think, I think there is some generational vision. You know what I mean? You know, like God is restoring what was lost, you know? I think it's just beautiful. Um, but honestly, it's, uh, it is honestly such a joy. And I want to thank uh, Brent and all the, all the leadership here at Riverside because uh, this, is not, this is not an easy topic to step into. It's actually really convenient to maybe not talk about it. You know what I mean? But then what's hanging in the balance? A person made in the image of God, just like Nicholas, is hanging in the balance. And so I think one of the things that's missing in this hour in leadership is courage. And uh, it, courage is simply, if you're going to give the Brian Pugh definition, maybe not the Oxford dictionary, dictionary definition, but courage is doing what's right and not what's easy. And uh, I think we're in a time as a church where we need to be willing to do what's right and not what's easy, love people, love God, but be uncompromisingly convicted when it comes to truth. Can you say amen to that? Yeah. Amen. So it's an honor to be here with you this morning. Uh, yeah, like Pastor Brent said, uh, my wife and I, uh, who's here, this is my beautiful wife, wave, sweetheart, <laughs> who, believe it or not, does not really approve of the red pants. Can you believe that? <laughs> what are the chances? Yeah. I just take my opportunity. She wasn't up when I got dressed, so I'm like, we're wearing them. Let's go. Um... <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, Bonnie and I, we've been married for 15 years and we have six boys and there's actually a picture, uh, picture of us here. That's the crew. Uh, we are minus, uh, the youngest Theodore is with my parents, uh, cause three services for him is like, you get it. He's two, you know? So, um, but they're all awesome. I love being a dad. I love being their dad and I'm not going to get emotional. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, you're not the one crying up here. <laughs> um, but honestly, it's a privilege to be a dad. It's a privilege to be doing what we're doing. And we are, we are just so thankful um, for God's call uh, on our lives. We really do love Jesus, and we really do uh, love what God's doing in this hour. And I think um, something that's just really encouraging is I, I do believe that we are on the brink of revival. And you want to know how I know we're on the brink of revival? Because we're talking about revival. You know what I mean? Like, that's a good sign, <laughs> you know, right? Uh, there's a stirring in the hearts of the body of Christ. And um, I just want to just kind of cast a vision for you of what the union's all about. We, we are committed to helping people find wholeness and sexuality, identity, and relationships with a biblical emphasis on the biblical and gospel-centered approach. Because we can talk about this subject in a lot of ways and be right and be completely wrong. This is not behavioral modification, this is not uh, dogma. This is life-giving, gospel-centered truth as it pertains to sexuality and identity. And uh, we want to be a resource that partners with the body of Christ, individuals, to help them experience wholeness. Because as I heard somebody say, truth is the only sword with no handle. So it's like it's cutting you as you're using it. It has to be hitting your own life, and we want to help people find freedom 
in the truth of God's design, uh, but also help leaders establish cultures that are healthy and thriving. Uh, so people are healthy and thriving in this area, as in the glory of God can be seen on the people of God. Uh, and so we uh, have online courses and resources. Uh, we crowdfund all that we do, so a lot of our partnership goes right back into producing resources, so it's totally free. Um, we have e-courses, one that we just launched uh, called Awkward. It's all for parents uh, to help talk to their kids around the topic of sexuality in a way that is less awkward because that's an awkward conversation sometimes for parents to talk to their kids about sexuality. And I will say this, do not view, if you're a mom or a dad, you've got kids, do not view the topic of sexuality as having the talk, because if you dealt with sexuality only one time in your life, then one talk would suffice. But we are dealing with it on a daily basis. Identity is a daily basis kind of thing. And you can talk about it in a way that's not awkward, uh, but it's life-giving and, uh, and biblically centered and glorifying to God and good for us. So there, anyways, we have our table out in the overflow room. I'd love to have a conversation with you later. Feel free to stop by and say hello and introduce yourself. Um, I'm going to read a scripture just into the record. Um, during worship this, this morning, it just kind of really jumped out to me. And so... Uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 1, it says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what, what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. The big question, what's the will of God for your life? Well, he answers it. Paul answers it here right in 1 Thessalonians. He says, that the will of God is your sanctification, that you would be conformed to the image of God. You were made in his image, you've been redeemed by Jesus, but now you are being conformed back to his image, not according to the pattern of this world. This is why Paul in Romans 12 is like, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you might experience the good and perfect will of God. That is God's heart for you and me, is that we would experience his will in being conformed. But part of that confirmation, part of that transformation is our, in our life is what? That you would abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you would know how to control his own passion and holiness. This is verse 4. And honor. Verse 5. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgressed and wronged his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Right? So there's not just an affirmation like, hey, you're doing good. Just keep doing it. Keep growing. But there's also a warning. It says, for God has not called us to impurity, but he's called us to holiness. Verse 8, therefore, whoever disregards this, whoever pushes this aside, whoever tries to sneak around this topic of sexuality, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to us. So I understand I'm going to say a lot of things, and I'm going to do my absolute best to preach the word as the word is. But if you don't like it, and if you don't like me, ain't my problem. You can go have a conversation with the Word of God, and you can go and have a conversation with God and wrestle it out. I encourage you to do so. That's why I'm still here. I've had to wrestle a whole bunch of stuff out. Yeah. But 
Again, I'm going to read this quote. It's by a man named G.K. Chesterton. It says this, Don't ever take a fence down until you know the reason it was put up. I bet you some of you have some stories, right, that would kind of align like that. I've got a story like that. Some of my friends, we decided it would be a great idea. Hey, let's go, let's go cow tipping. I don't even know. If, I still don't even know if that can happen. <laughs> Anyways, in the middle of the night, we decided that we're going to hop this fence because apparently cows sleep standing up, so we're going to go push them over. I, if you're a cow person, help me out, right? I don't, I don't know. But we found out really quickly why there was a fence. It's because there wasn't just cows in the field. That bull found us pretty quickly. And we were back over said fence on the good side of the fence. Now, what's concerning to me is we are living in a time where it is the in thing, the culturally relevant thing to do is to remove fences. Let's just do it all over the place. Let's sanction it. Let's get it into law. Let's remove boundaries. And folks, there are some things in this, in this life that if you try to stretch them, they're like an elastic band. You try to stretch the design of God for humanity, you try to become the definers of what it means to be a man or a woman for yourself, you stretch that elastic band, it will snap back into place. You might be able to stretch it for a little while, but it's going to hit home. And we're going to get into it of how I feel like we are almost there in a good, bad way. And I think uh, really my heart today is, I said in the first service that this is kind of like a skydive experience, right? We're going to get up really high, we're going to look around, and then we're going to jump out, and then we're going to pull a chute, and before you know it, we're going to be on the ground, okay? So you can see if you can find out where, where I pull the chute in today. But we're going to try to get a big perspective, and we're going to try to bring it back down to the gospel today, okay? Um, I think it's really easy to be overwhelmed right now. When it comes to sexuality, it comes to identity, you're afraid of being canceled. Do I even, do I post that? Do I say that? Do I like that? Do I share that? Or should have I liked that other thing faster? Because apparently you can't like something fast enough. Because if you didn't just, you know, like right away, you're obviously chauvinist or da-da-da, the list goes on. You're a bigot and you're, you're just hate-filled and you're insensitive. Anyways, I'm going to stop there. Right? But my heart today is that you would have confidence and that the peace of God's word would wash over your heart so you can go, ah, God, you got this. You got this. I don't got to be anxious. I don't got to be angry. I can trust in your word. I can trust in what you're doing in this hour because, folks, God is doing something in this hour. But I, I've, got, I've got good bad news for you. It's kind of like good, it's kind of like good news. But it's kind of bad. It's bad good news. It's, it's good. <laughs> bad news. But, it's, but the good news is, it's just bad news, okay? It's always been this way. We've always, the people of God, have always dealt with a demonically inspired strategy and attack when it came to identity and sexuality. This has been the biggest battle for the people of God throughout history. Old Testament, New Testament, what was it that caused nations to fall? Well, there is an author, I, I forget his name, his last name's Black, James Nelson Black, he wrote a book, When Nations Fall. He documents that the fall of the Roman Empire 
was not just was not just built around like war strategy and some other nation overcoming them. He connects it back to two major things, the devaluing of human life and the increased sexual perversion that was going on in Rome. Interesting. So have we been here before? Yeah. And we're going we're gonna to jump into it and we're going to show you, show you why. Because this conversation is not new. For the sake of time, I'm just going to do an overview. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see that, well, leading up to Genesis chapter 3, we see that God made man and woman in his image. And what did he say? He said, this is good. Yeah. Well, here, guys, here's some good news, okay? You by yourself, we're not good. And then God said, I'm going to make woman. I want to make a companion. And then he said it was good. Ladies, say amen. amen. Right? It's good news, right? I know this is like super cheesy Christian stuff, but I think like when Adam, when Adam saw Eve, he was like, whoa, man. That's where I came from. I'm sorry. Red pants and cheesy is just too much, right? Too much. But anyways, we see that in Genesis chapter 2. So, God, so, okay, so God's made Adam and Eve. He sets them in the garden. He gives them responsibility, and it's good. They're living in fellowship with him. It's blessing. You know, there's fruit for all our vegan friends. There's just avocados all over the place. You know what I mean? It's just beautiful. It's good. It's this place where heaven and earth intersected, where God and humanity met in beautiful communion, the way it was supposed to be. And you want to know what it says at the end of Genesis chapter 2? It says that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. They were naked and totally free. So for all of us who might think that God is anti-sex or get all super awkward, like, oh, why are we talking about sex on Sunday? Can we just talk about Jesus, please? You know? It's because God actually made sex. I normally get a few more amens on that, but like, <laughs> God, God is not awkward around sex. He designed sex. But here's the thing, he put it in a context. You think I'm a rapper, right? <laughs> He's not awkward about sex. He's not, he doesn't get bent out of shape about it, but he puts it in the right context. Just like you build a fire in the fireplace and not in the middle of the living room floor. The avenue, the atmosphere in which you set something is actually really important. You take it outside of that context and there's damage and there's pain and there's insecurity and there's confusion and there's guilt and there's shame. But see, God is not a cosmic killjoy trying to ruin your fun or my fun. He says, I'm going to not keep something from you. I'm going to keep something for you. And I'm going to design sexuality to be a blessing within the covenant relationship of one man and one woman in marriage. Where there's safety, security, permanence, and commitment. All the things that cause our heart to thrive. God says, that's where I'm going to put sexuality. But we see in this story that they were naked and they were not ashamed in Genesis chapter 2. And then Genesis chapter 3 starts. And we see this. It says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he says to Eve, he starts to talk to a daughter. He goes, hey, did God really say don't eat from the tree? Did he really say it, though? Was he really saying what he said when he said what he was saying? Was he really saying that, though? Is he really saying what he said when he said what he was saying? Or is he saying, like, what was he saying? That's kind of how confusing it's gotten right now, right? 
That was even difficult for me to say. But that's how confusing it is. And because he's starting to sow doubt into the heart of a daughter. Because, ladies, isn't that, like, your, your, your language, the love language for your heart is trust. Can you trust? And so he's starting to go after the identity of a young lady and say, hey, I don't think you can trust your heavenly father. Because did he really say that? Is that what he was about? Is that what he was saying? And she quotes back to him what God has said, but she adds a little bit of a, an extra on there. She says, well, God actually said that, you know, um, he said that, that you can't actually touch it, which actually God didn't say. So we see that there's some confusion, there's kind of some panic, there's some addition to what God is saying. And then Satan comes out and makes a bold-faced lie to Eve and says, actually, you're not going to die. Blatant contradiction to what God said. Because God even said in the command, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Not that you will cease to exist, but your soul will begin to decay. There will be separation between you and me. It's a bold-faced lie to what God had established. And they eat from the tree and we go from temptation to doubt to rebellion to confusion to shame to guilt to hiding to now trying to make coverings for themselves. They go and hide. They've eaten from the tree. They knew that they were naked and not ashamed. They ate from the tree and they knew in a moment that something had shifted. Some of us know if we were open and honest about our story, about our past, about some of the decisions we've made, we know what happens to our soul when we cross that boundary. We know what happens when we give ourselves to something on a screen, trying to seek some euphoric experience because of the brokenness in our own soul. We know what it's like when we respond to that text that we know we shouldn't have with somebody who is not safe and who is only out to get something from us. Some of us, if we are honest, we know what that's like. And this boundary that God has put around sexuality is to protect you, is not to keep something from you. Because this, this stuff is potent, it's powerful. And shame enters into Adam and Eve when they eat from that tree. But I have good news for you. Who came looking for Adam and Eve? Did Adam and Eve just try to say, okay, I'm going to be a good person now. I'm going to get my stuff together and then I'm going to go find God. We're going to go, Eve. Adam's like, we're going to go, Eve. We're going to Riverside this morning. We're going to fix our stuff up. We're turning over a new leaf in 2023. No, God came looking for Adam and Eve. Man, I'm thankful that God came looking for me. Because I was a broken young man who had believed a lie about what it meant to be a man. That it was not just about sexual experience and sexual conquest. And that women had inherent value from God. That they weren't just there for my own pleasure. God came and took that young man bound to pornography and set him free. I didn't get my stuff together. I didn't try harder. I encountered Christ. And this is why, this is why Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 4 that this is a sanctification. This is a process. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are justified. You are a new creation. You have a new desires. But how many of you know that there's a process 
from A to B, being conformed to the image of Christ. That is a sanctification process. So I believe today that God is wanting to shape us, heal us, restore us in a greater measure, layer upon layer. But we don't get our stuff together. We don't start trying harder. God came and found Adam and Eve. And you want to know what I love? Is he takes the fig leaves that they had tried to cover themselves with and goes, hmm, I'm going to do one better. Not quite red pants, but I'm going to do one better. Actually, it's better than red pants. Let's not spread heresy here today. Okay? Immediately, God sacrifices an animal and makes coverings for them. Who was the slain lamb who takes away the sins of the world? It's Jesus. Right there, in the plan and purposes of God, he came looking for us, and he wants to take some of us, the shame that you've been using to cover what's really going on, the things that you've come up with, because what does it look like as, as a Christian living in shame? It says, I'm going to be serving all day, every day to try to earn back my position, to try to pay God back for all he did and for all I did. I'm going to be on the worship team. I'm going to be on the greeting team. I'm going to be on the parking team. I'm going to be on the coffee team. I'm going to be on the media team. I'm going to be on this team because I'm going to earn it back. And God, I'll sit in the back row because I'm not good enough to be in the quote unquote front row. You don't want to know what God loves to do? Nothing but love for the back row people. I want to make that really clear. Okay? It's like it's a like proverbial back row, you know? Like, you want to know what God loves to do? He loves to reach back to the back row and say, son, daughter, there are only first-class Christians. There are only first-class sons and daughters. Nobody sits in coach in my family. And it doesn't matter where you sit in an auditorium, but your position is seated with him in heavenly places. Can you say amen? amen. So we see that the consequence, John Mark Comer highlights this. He says the consequence of the fall, this rebellion towards God was not atheism specifically, but was more so idolatry. There was this exchange that takes place. They decided, you know what? I'm not going to be submitted to God. I'm going to be God myself. I don't have to trust God with my sexuality, my identity, his boundary that he's put. I can set the boundary for myself. This is the same temptation for all of us. This is the same question being asked today. Did God really say, do I actually have to submit my sexual desires to God? Because listen, um, Martin Luther said this, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. Right? We deal with all kinds of desires. If I had the ability to take some of your thoughts that maybe even you thought this morning and put it up on the screen for all to see, I think some of us would be kind of ashamed. I know I would be. There's things that go through my mind at times. Like, where did that come from? Because we live in a fallen world. We fight a real enemy who is out to destroy you. And he starts with this question. Did God really say? And how you answer that question determines the trajectory of your life. Paul highlights this again. He says in Romans 1 uh, verse 25, it says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. There's an exchange that happens. 
It's like you're confronted with truth. You go, I don't like it. I'm going to find a way to have my cake and eat it too. And we are worshiping sexuality in our society. It is viewed as the highest human experience. And as Christians, we would know, hopefully we would know, that the presence of God is the highest human experience. The love of Jesus is the highest human experience. His blessing is the highest human experience. The righteousness that God has purchased for us is the highest human experience. I want to highlight to you, there's this cycle that's, that's really shown very deeply in, in the book of Judges. And if you've read one chapter of Judges, I encourage you to do it. It's like you've read the entire book because it just cycles again and again and again. And it's this exact cycle that the people of God would be walking in righteousness, loving God, keeping the sacrifices, keeping the Sabbath, doing all the worship stuff. It's good. God, God's blessing, got God's protection. But then they start to drift. They start to worship other gods, specifically some of these Canaanite gods known as Baal, Asherah, and Molech. And here's what's crazy. They don't go and worship these gods in the sense of like abandoning Yahweh, and they go and start worshiping Baal. It's like, hey, we should just cover our bases. You know what I mean? I don't really want to miss out. So let's worship Baal and Yahweh. You know what I mean? I love the festivals, but you know, I love the sexual immorality that Bales seems to be pretty fond of. So can we make a deal? That's essentially what would happen. Yeah. They'd be going to the temple, doing the temple stuff, and then going to the high places to sacrifice to Baal. And then what would happen is God would allow the consequences of their idolatry to hit home. And God would warn them, saying, hey, you keep going this way. There's going to be other nations that are coming, going to take you into captivity. And it would happen. And then if you ever, like, it's kind of like for your parents, you know, maybe spank your kids, like, that spanking comes, and then there's the crying. Like, oh, I'm so sorry for what I did. Then the people of God cry out. And God, who is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, what does he do? He goes, all right, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to raise up a judge. I'm going to raise up a prophet. He's going to defeat this other nation. And I'm going to bring you back into right standing with myself. Right? Because God's like that. That's how he rolls. But then the problem is the cycle would start again and again. Is because we wouldn't be satisfied with the loving boundary that God puts around some of these things. But we would drift in our conviction. Where do you think we are in this, in this cycle? in our nation? This is a hypo, hypothetical question. Ponder it. Selah, as Psalm says. I would like to suggest, humbly like to suggest, that we are somewhere in between oppression and repentance. Which gives me hope. Because revival is on the way. Because God is the same God. He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because we have a mandate as a church. I'm going to fly through this. We have a mandate, the cross-shaped mandate. We, we should be relating vertically with God. We have a passionate, holy relationship with God. Right? Where we're walking in righteousness. We're repenting of known sin. We're turning away and denying the, the lust of the flesh. And we're turning away from temptation. Not wrestling with temptation. We are fleeing temptation. 
We're not playing games, right? So that's our vertical relationship with God. Spiritual formation, prayer, worship, this is all going on. But then we have this other horizontal responsibility and mandate where we are confronting the lies of culture that are keeping people in bondage with the truth of who Jesus is and his design for these areas. And the problem I've seen in an observation, I'm, I'm kind of from a movement, a stream that is more charismatic in some of its doctrine. I hope we can still hang out and be friends. But like, what we tend to do is hype up our Sunday morning experience so that we don't have to confront some of the stuff going on in culture. We don't want to talk about abortion. We don't want to talk about how it's connected to the worship of sex in our culture. We don't want to talk about how, how, man, bless God. <laughs> we just don't want to talk about some of this stuff. Because it's not, doesn't win a crowd. And like, I would rather be on the wrong side of history and the right side of God. But we have this mandate, and I'm concerned that if we do not, with conviction and compassion, marry these two realities of truth and grace, because we can end up in the, in the side, the one ditch, where we think that we love people more than God, and we start crossing things out of the Bible that are socially inconvenient, that's a ditch over there. Or we can end up in this place where we're really activists, and we're angry, and we will show the world that we are his disciples because of how angry we are, and how offensive our signs can be. And neither one of those are the character of Christ. There's a third option where we can marry the reality of God's truth and his grace, his conviction, his design and principle, yet with his compassion and mercy. And this is what we're called to in this hour. Yeah. See, these same false gods that were worshipped in the Old Testament... Baal, Asherah, and Molech were all worshipped through two specific ways. Human sacrifice and sexual immorality. Sex and death will always be together. And here, can I really send this home for you at 1057 on a Sunday morning? Real light topic for you. Why does it say in Leviticus 18, where it starts to go through the, the boundaries for sexual morality, why does it say right in the middle of Leviticus 18, do not allow your children to be passed through the fire? It seems kind of like out of place, doesn't it? Like, did you just forget what you were talking about for a minute? No, it's because they're connected. You can't, you can't have a culture that worships sexual experience without abortion. So we need to stand for human life, young life and old life, but we need to see deeper beyond just the battle over life and see that it's actually a demonic strategy, twisting the design of God, twisting the purposes of God, and taking something that God is meant to be a gift and make it God himself. In closing here, I just want to read to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you guys would be familiar with this as you just walked through 1 Corinthians. Paul says in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexually, homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Can you imagine being a Greek 
person sitting in some Greek villa, hearing the word of God being read as this letter from Paul is being passed around to the churches in Corinth. And you're going, what? Wait, whoa, wait a second. I was, I, I did those things. I was in the temple of Diana. I had a membership to the temple of Diana. I was doing all the sexual practices, the sexual worship. What do you mean? Do you mean like I don't have anything in Jesus? Do you mean that like my destiny in my life is over? You would imagine the air being sucked out of that person's lungs like, oh no. But check this next verse. He says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. And you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Can I just tell you one more avenue that Paul highlights here? Is he actually highlights the fact that what you do with your body is very important. It's not a separate, it's not a sidebar. It's not a second level. It's not a second tier part of the human experience. You are body, soul, and spirit. And what transgender and the modern transgender kind of theory is putting out right now is it's actually your inner perception of yourself that is greater than your biology or your physiology. It's this two-tier kind of perspective that Francis Schaeffer highlights. He says, well, actually, it's this thought that like, well, yes, your body's kind of important, but it's really who you are on the inside or how you perceive yourself, how you shape yourself to be on the inside that is the most important part of who you are. Your biology actually doesn't matter. But Paul actually says what you do with the body really does matter. And can I show you how the gospel is so intricately connected to transgenderism? Jesus came in to a human body. See, the gospel is not just that Jesus went to the cross for your sins. It is that. But it's also that he lived the human experience for your righteousness. He, he came and put on flesh and bone. God came in in the likeness of humanity. He goes to the death. He dies a physical death. He is resurrected in a physical body. Sounds to me like God actually sees the body as quite important. And I understand, listen, we, fought, we are living in a fallen world. And some of you, if you're feeling this disconnect between who you are on the inside and who you are in your body, it almost feels like you're wearing a glove that's too big. It just doesn't fit right. It's just weird. I don't know what's going on. I have good news for you. Jesus can heal that connection. Jesus can restore that connection between who you are in your inside and who you are on the outside. God made your body. He's not ashamed of it. It doesn't disgust him. And Jesus can restore that because the resurrection power that brought him back into his body is the same resurrection power that can restore you to yours. Amen. Would you just stand to your feet here with me this morning? Church, I have good news for you. Is we can see what God will do and we can see what God can do if we are willing to do what he's told us to do. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. This is where it gets real. 
There's a turning from the wicked ways. There's a turning from what you know to be sin. What you know to be contrary to the heart of God. And what does he do when we do those four things? He does what we can't do. He forgives our sin. He heals our land. This is what we need in this hour. We need the people of God to be the people of God. So would you just pray with me in this moment, Father, in the name of Jesus. We pray that you would do a work in our hearts as your people to marry conviction with compassion. You'd give us courage to stand and be a high ground for broken people to come out of the deluge of brokenness in our society and find, find that high ground of freedom that you've purchased for us in Jesus. God, I pray for anyone here today, God, they might be dealing with secret sins. They might be dealing with, with search histories that are plaguing them. Lord, your word says if we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you also say if we confess our sins one to another and pray for each other, we can experience healing. I pray for that type of transparency to take place today. That God, you would work in us. You would, you would sanctify us. You would heal us. Renew us here today to be an effective witness in this area and to see revival come to our nation. To see you move by your spirit and bring the lost home to you again. In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.